All right, good morning. Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 12. Again, that is Mark 12, 1 through 12, and we're continuing our study of Mark's Gospel. And this morning we come to the parable of the wicked tenants. Uh, Now the text before us comes on the heels of Jesus' most recent interaction with the religious rulers of Israel. Um, You'll remember last week that Jesus has been engaged with the members, or rather with some representative members of the Sanhedrin since chapter 11, verse 27. And they've come to him to ask him uh, questions in order to try and trap him so that they can accuse him of public blasphemy and have him killed. In chapter 11, verses 27 through 33, last week's text, we saw these men challenge the authority of our Lord Jesus. And we saw how our Lord masterfully answered their challenge. And in doing so, we saw how he also asserted his own authority and displayed that it is actually the very authority of God Almighty. And now in our text this morning, Jesus tells a parable against these religious rulers. And this parable is going to shed devastating light on how they hate him and are planning to kill him and even how they'll succeed. The, the parable before us is it's not a happy one, at least not all the way through. There, there is hope in it. But it's really it's a parable of judgment. Um, it's a warning passage of sorts. It's a warning to the religious rulers who rejected Jesus. It's a warning of their impending destruction in both time and eternity for the sin of rejecting the Son of God. And by extension, this text serves as a warning to all men throughout the ages. And it's a warning of the eternal destruction that awaits all who reject the authority of Jesus Christ. It's a warning to any who would reject the Son of God and refuse to come to Him in faith and repentance. Because those who reject Jesus Christ are not rejecting a mere man. They are rejecting God's beloved Son. And there will be dire consequences for it, eternal consequences for it. So this text is a warning, but it's not just a warning. It's also a marvel. It's a, it's a, this text gives cause for us to rejoice. For God's people to rejoice. This text uh, gives ground for those who love the Savior to rejoice. And I say that because there is a note of hopeful expectation in the text before us. Hope in what God is going to bring about through the religious ruler's rejection of Jesus. And what God is going to bring about through the rejection, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus is this. He's going to bring about a new Israel a faithful Israel, salvation for the world. And this is something that those who love the Lord will eternally marvel at and glory in. This, what God is going to do through the rejected Messiah, is something for which each one of us who love Jesus Christ is grateful for. So this text is both a warning and a marvel. Now with that said, if you would and are able, please stand with me now for the reading of the inspired, inerrant, and infallible Word of God. Mark chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And he began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the winepress and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season came, he sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. And they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. Again, he sent to them another servant, and they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another, and him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. He had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them, saying, They will respect my son. But those tenants said to one another, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people, for they perceived that he had told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Our great God and Father, we thank you for your word. It is such a blessing to be instructed from the very mouth of God. And since we desire to know your will, since we desire to know what you have said, we ask for help. By your spirit, we ask that you would open our eyes, ears, minds, and hearts to receive what you have revealed to us through holy men of old. Cause us, Lord, to delight in the truth, receive the truth, submit to the truth, repent in light of the truth, believe the truth, and obey the truth. Your word is truth. Bless us and teach us for the glory of your great name. And please give us a sight of our Lord Jesus, your son, in all his majesty and glory. We ask for these things in his name and for his sake. Amen. You may be seated. So our text begins by telling us that Jesus began to speak in parables. So I want to give a a quick word about parables here, uh, maybe a refresher for some of you. Um, Here's a really old definition of a parable. Some of you have heard it, maybe you'll you'll laugh. Uh, A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Uh, You've heard that it's an old one. It's become a little bit cliche in the church, but it's it's true. It's a good definition. A parable is an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. A parable is a story that Jesus told that uses ordinary earthly events and objects to convey spiritual truth to his hearers. And our text, Mark tells us, is a parable, right? It is one of these stories. But when we consider parables, we need to use caution, right? So a word of caution here. We don't want to stretch the parables to the breaking point, right? There's symbolism in them, for sure. There can even be a bit of allegory, as I believe there is in our text this morning. But we must beware of stretching the parable beyond its intended meaning, right? Often, parables contain one major point, sometimes two, and we don't want to stretch them into teaching something that our Lord did not intend, and people do this all the time, right? Let me give you an example. God is often represented in parables, right? God is often represented by a character in a parable, and sometimes in Jesus' parable, the character that represents God learns information. Example, a ruler heard that his servant did not forgive a debt. So the ruler, representing God in the parable, learned something. But we must not then deduce that God learns, right? That's not the point of the parable. The scriptures are clear that God has all knowledge in himself, that he knows all things and decreed all things whatsoever comes to pass. And Jesus is not contradicting scripture with his parables. The parable is not meant to teach you that God learns anything, right? The parable I was referring to is the parable of the unforgiving servant. The parable is about forgiveness and how God expects his people to forgive, not that God learns information. You get what I'm saying, I hope. So my point is we can't stretch the parables beyond the meaning or intended meaning of our Lord Jesus. Whenever we read the parables, we're meant to look for the big picture points in them. That's the purpose of parables. It's like they're illustrations. So lastly, uh, a word about parables. We we must realize that our text today, uh, I believe, contains a unique parable. And I say that because if we look at the words of our Lord in Mark chapter 4, about the purpose for parables, Jesus tells us that parables were intended to conceal truth from the unbelieving. And he he quotes Isaiah, he says, so that seeing they will not see, and hearing they will not understand. Right, so that's the ordinary purpose for parables, is actually to reveal truth to the believer, but to conceal it from the unbeliever. Uh, The parables were meant to inspire meditation upon the words of Christ. And even, as we see the disciples doing, the parables are meant to cause the believer to approach Christ for greater understanding. But this parable isn't like that. The parable in our text is not cloudy at all. Like some of the parables are difficult, right? Especially whenever Jesus doesn't give us the inspired interpretation of them. (laughs) But this one's not dark at all. This one's not cloudy. It's actually very clear. Jesus intended the parable in our text to be understood by the unbelievers. And we see that 
I'm not making that up. Verse 12. They perceived that he had told the parable against them. Which is an understatement. Yes, this parable is very much against the religious leaders of Israel. And Jesus intended them to understand it. It was told against them. And it was very clearly understood that day, unlike many of his parables. So this one's unique. Now, with uh, a word about the parables then, uh, let's dive into the parable itself. Verse 1, a man planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a pit for the wine press and built a tower. Right off the bat, Jesus begins using language that the religious leaders who knew the Old Testament better than anyone, language that they would have immediately recognized. What am I, what am I getting at? Jesus is drawing heavily from the book of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5. If you want to go ahead and turn there uh, real quick. Jesus is nearly quoting Isaiah chapter 5 verses 1 and 2. There we read in Isaiah 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. That wild grape there, the Hebrew word means sour, rotten grapes, worthless grapes. Anyone familiar with Isaiah, and no doubt these religious leaders who knew, had memorized huge portions of the Old Testament. They knew, they recognized this. If you, just real quick, if you as a Gentile, and we in 21st century Christians don't know our Old Testament nearly as well, if you read that first verse of this parable and said, that kind of sounds like something I've heard in the Old Testament, know for a fact that they caught it. They caught this. They know Jesus is, is drawing heavily from Isaiah 5. And Isaiah chapter 5 goes on to say in verse 7, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. So this vineyard represents the nation of Israel. And in the text, in Isaiah chapter 5, if you read the whole thing, God speaks a word of judgment on Israel for not producing the fruit that he had demanded. Instead of righteousness and justice, God found bloodshed and wickedness. And so God promises in Isaiah chapter 5 that he is going to destroy the vineyard. Isaiah's text is a judgment text. And Jesus' reference to it in his parable should be understood that way. This is a judgment parable. So the vineyard represents Israel. And that means quite naturally then that the vineyard owner, the one who planted the vineyard, naturally is God. Right? God created the nation of Israel. God called Abraham. God promised to bless Abraham's offspring. God freed the Hebrews from bondage in Egypt. God made them a nation. God established them in the land. God gave that nation every advantage they could have ever wanted. Just like the vineyard owner planted the vineyard with everything it would need. Right? What's the text say? He, he gives them a fence and dug a wine press and built a tower. He gave the vineyard everything that it would need to produce fruit. So also God gave Israel the scriptures, the oracles of God. As Paul refers to it, he gave them the prophets, he gave them the priesthood, he gave them the temple, he gave them every spiritual advantage they could have ever wanted. And what did God demand in return? He didn't do this for no reason. Fruit. This reminds us of the fig tree that Jesus cursed because it didn't produce fruit. He demands fruit in return. He wanted their lives. He demanded their allegiance, their worship, their devotion. Their uncompromising obedience. That's what God wanted. The vineyard is Israel and the owner is God. Jesus then tells us in verse 1 that the owner leased it. He leased the vineyard to tenants and went into another country. And just here, a historical note. Jesus is referring to a pretty common practice in that time. Some of you are already familiar with this. Um, and it's tenant farming. Some of you have read about this. Maybe some of your family members used to do this around here. Uh, but what, it, what would happen with tenant farming is you would have a landowner who would lease his property to farmers, and they would work the land, and the deal would look something like this. The owner would take a percentage of the crops, like 25% or so, and the ones who actually farmed the land would get to keep everything else. 
right? And the owner of the land usually would not live nearby. Uh, He would entrust that land to farmers and then attend his business elsewhere until the harvest, right? And then he would have someone come and collect his due and the farmers get to keep everything else. That's what Jesus is referring to here. The, The owner of the vineyard leased it to tenants. But then that makes us ask, who are the tenants? Who are the tenants supposed to represent in this parable? Well, let's consider the tenants. They were the ones who were responsible for the vineyard, right? They, they had to watch over the Lord's vineyard. They had to tend it and help it to grow and help it to produce fruit. The tenants had responsibility in the vineyard. And in light of that, and considering the context of Jesus speaking this parable against the religious leaders who were men of authority and responsibility in Israel, I think it's safe to say that the tenants represent the religious leaders of Israel. So what we have here is Jesus describing the state of things in Israel. God made the nation. It is his vineyard. And he entrusted the nation to the religious leaders. Note here that the vineyard does not belong to the tenants. It is God's nation. They are merely living and working there. They've been given a stewardship by God that they are to honor. And so the leaders under God are obligated to do whatever he tells them to do. Their authority is not their own. They are under God and obligated to him. And that's how things were supposed to work. It's God's nation. And again, the leaders have been given responsibility to do what God has said and help the nation to produce fruit, to lead them into righteousness. Let's see how that worked out in the parable. Verse 2. When the season came, he, the vineyard owner, sent a servant to the tenants to get from them some of the fruit of the vineyard. That is, when the season came, when harvest time came, the owner sent one of his servants to get what was due to him. And the servant went, and when a servant goes somewhere on behalf of his master, the servant speaks with all the authority of the one who sent him. We're familiar, it's like an apostle, a messenger, comes with the authority of the one who sent. So the servant came to speak on behalf of the vineyard owner, or the servant came to speak on behalf of God in order to collect the fruit due to God. And how did that work out? Verse 3, and they took him and beat him and sent him away empty-handed. If you were in Jesus' original audience this day, you'd have been shocked. Maybe this doesn't shock us the way that it would have them because we've read this, we're familiar with this parable. But the tenants didn't give what was owed. That's illegal. But not only is that illegal, but in Jesus' day, the owner of the vineyard would actually be within his rights to go to the authorities and amass a small army and march on the vineyard to take it back from the tenants. This actually happened from time to time back then. When tenant farmers would not give the owner his due, he would go to the the civil magistrate. They would give him soldiers, essentially, and they would go and establish justice. They know that that's what he would be within his rights to do. These tenants are evil men. These tenants are evil men. They're behaving as if they own the vineyard. And they don't. They're thieves. They're attempting to steal what is due to the vineyard owner. They're pretending as if they're the ones in charge. They're in rebellion against the owner of the vineyard, refusing to give him his due. But the owner in Jesus' parable is very patient. Jesus goes on to tell us in verses 4 and 5, again, 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 he sent to them another servant. And they struck him on the head and treated him shamefully. And he sent another servant. And him they killed. And so with many others, some they beat and some they killed. Some of you might not realize this, but Jesus is rehearsing the history of Israel here. That's what he's doing. The servants of the vineyard owner are servants of God. Remember, the vineyard owner represents God. And in the Old Testament, servant of God is used to refer to prophets. The prophets that God so often sent to Israel. Uh, you can read uh, this phrase, servant of God, applied to the prophets in 1 Kings 14, 18, 2 Kings 9, 36, Ezra 9, 11, Isaiah 20, verse 3, and other passages. So this is common language for prophets. And when God sent the prophets, they always came with a message of repentance. 
They did not come because everything was going really great. They came with a message of repentance. The prophets came calling the rulers, both civil rulers and religious rulers and the people to repent and give God the fruit of worship and holiness and righteousness and repentance and godliness that is God's due. God sent the prophets time and time again to call the nation to repent, but they rarely did, at least for not any significant amount of time. In fact, most of the time, the prophets were ignored. Nobody would listen, especially the religious leaders. And in the Old Testament, we read about how some of the prophets were mistreated. Think of Jeremiah put in a cistern, beaten, arrested. The prophets were often treated shamefully. And why? Because the leaders of Israel did not want to hear the word of God. Because they did not want to submit to the Lord. Because they claimed to love God, but in reality, they usurped his authority and lived for themselves. Jewish tradition actually tells us how terribly Israel treated the prophets. According to tradition, Isaiah was placed in a log and sawn in half. The great prophet Isaiah, sawn in two. We read in the Old Testament that, or rather, I'm sorry, Jewish tradition tells us that Jeremiah, after we read in the Old Testament of how he was beaten and imprisoned, that he was actually eventually stoned to death. We read in the New Testament how John the Baptist, who Jesus says is the greatest prophet, John the Baptist was jailed and eventually beheaded. And nobody in the religious establishment of Israel came to John's aid to try to get him out of prison. They were glad that he was arrested. Second Chronicles chapter 36, verse 16, gives us something of a summary of how Israel treated the prophets. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, mocking them despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of Yahweh rose against his people until there was no remedy. Jesus himself affirms how Israel's leaders rejected God's prophets. You guys, some of you are familiar with this text, Matthew 23, 37. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. God sent prophet after prophet right up to John the Baptist, and yet time and time again, the leaders of Israel rejected them. And in doing so, they were rejecting God himself. They were usurping the authority of God and trying to take it for themselves. So the tenants, the religious leaders, they were wicked, godless men. They did not love the Lord. If they did, they would have listened to the prophets. They would have listened to John, and they would have listened to Jesus but they did not. Instead, they mocked and scoffed and plotted and murdered. But let me take a moment and draw your attention to something briefly. I don't want you to miss this. It stuck out to me in my studies. Verse 5 teaches us something about the character of God. The text says that he sent many others, many others. As I said earlier, everyone in Jesus' audience probably would have thought this vineyard owner was a fool. Why is that? Because they would have been expecting the vineyard owner to have sent an army against the tenants after the first servant was rejected. That's what they would have expected. They would honestly probably be thinking this vineyard owner is a fool, that he would continue to send servant after servant after they're beaten and murdered, and he sends many others. This would have been unimaginable to Jesus' original audience. But indeed, that's what God did isn't it? It's what God did, and that highlights to us the patience of God. Our God is incredibly patient, more patient than any of us would be. There was a, a Christian band me and Stephen used to listen to that had a line in a song I always liked. He said, if I were God, we'd all be dead, which is actually funny enough, something like Martin Luther said, Martin Luther said, if I were God and people treated me the way they treated him, I would kick the world to pieces. But God is patient. He is the God of patience. God was patient with Israel, and that's why he sent them so many prophets. He gave them chance after chance to repent and return to him. Our God is not quickly provoked to wrath. 
He's slow to anger. That's said so many times throughout the Old Testament. He's slow to anger. But he will eventually execute vengeance on the wicked. But until that day, he is incredibly patient. But not only do we see his patience toward Israel, but we see his patience even toward wicked individuals in this parable, don't we? Remember, the vineyard represents Israel. The tenants are the religious leaders. God is patient with wicked individuals. Let let this be a reminder to us that when God finally decides to act in justice and wrath, those who are struck down and judged deserve it. Don't, Don't ever question the justice of God. He has been patient. When it's time for him to throw down, it is, it is deserved. It would be deserved even if he weren't patient. But let's, let this be a testimony to us. When God judges, it is certainly just because God patiently waited for repentance beforehand. And this is relevant, a brief application here. This is relevant to our day when we look around and see the clear judgment of God on our nation. We deserve this. I'm not trying to sound like a doomsday prophet, but we need to recognize this as God's people more than anyone else. We're being judged as a nation, and we deserve it. We deserve every godless leader that we get because we've chosen him or her. We deserve every wicked piece of legislation that we see. We deserve economic punishment, and we deserve much more than that. Our nation for over a century now has been in open, abject rebellion to God. And God has given us much time and many opportunities to repent and return to him. And yet our nation, time and again, has scorned the patience and kindness of God. And I believe that his judgment has begun and America deserves it. Consider our heritage, the Puritans, and how we have scorned the Lord for centuries. We deserve it. We deserve his judgment. And our only hope then, and what we as God's people ought to be speaking prophetically to the world around us, is that our only hope as a nation is to repent and return to the Lord or we will be cast down. And it will be just because he has been patient. He should have destroyed this country the moment Roe v. Wade was passed through the Supreme Court. And he's been patient. But consider also the patience of God with each one of us who are saved. This, is, this should make you rejoice. Consider his patience. You are here and right with God and alive to this very day. Why? Because he was patient with you. <laughs> he could have taken our lives from us when we were living in our sin. He could have taken us from this world and damned us as we were in the middle of our rebellion. But he was patient. And he restrained his wrath so that we might come to Christ and be saved. Our God is patient and we ought to praise him for this because without his patience, we would not be saved. We would be damned. But he has been patient towards his elect because he loves us. And even beyond that, Christian, consider God's continued patience with you. I I want to encourage you because so many people believe that, that the Lord will eventually run out of patience with his people. And when I say his people, I don't mean that generically how Israel was full of believers and unbelievers and they were his people. I'm talking about his new covenant people of which everyone is an actual believer. Some Christians are really worried that God's eventually going to not be patient with them. Listen, I'm not saying that he won't discipline you. He will. But if he was patient with you before you came to Christ so that you might be saved, how much more patient will he be with you now that you've been cleansed in the blood of the Lord? Certainly he'll continue to be patient with you. Because God is faithful and patient with us, we will not be lost. Even his discipline toward us when we sin is not as severe as it often should be. He is patient with us in all of our failings, in all of our sin. He calls us to repent, but he's patient. And he gives us opportunity after opportunity. And he actually gives us, uh, Philippians 2, he gives us the desire and the ability to repent and return to him time after time. He is patient with us. He's patient. And so we will never be deserted by him and we will never be entirely cast off. And because he is patient with us, his children, we will be preserved by grace and persevere. Praise God that he is patient. 
His, ju- his judgment is just against the impenitent. And that should make us fear. But his patience with us is astounding. Truly, he is the God of all patience. But back, back to our text here. Jesus has given a summary of the religious leader's rejection of the prophets over the centuries. And now he turns to what God had done and was doing in the time when he walked the earth. Verse 6, he had still one other, a beloved son. Finally, he sent him to them saying, they will respect my son. The vineyard owner has one last person to send, his own beloved son. And so last of all and most important of all, he sent his son to these wicked tenants. Surely, even men as wicked as these would listen to the son. Why? Because the son is no servant. The son is the son of the father, the vineyard owner. The son is different. The son carries more authority than the servants. Surely, they'll listen to him. Now, you don't have to be a brilliant theologian to realize that this son represents Christ, represents Jesus, the son of God. And the fact that he's called the beloved son Let's us know that beyond all dispute. You remember in Mark 1.11, God the Father spoke at Jesus' baptism and said, You are my beloved Son, with whom, or rather with you, I am well pleased. And again in Mark chapter 9, verse 7, at the Mount of Transfiguration, God spoke and said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the Son of the Father of the same nature as the Father, God in the flesh. Here in this parable, Jesus is giving self-revelation to anyone who cares to listen to him. He's saying, I am the son of the vineyard owner. I am the son of God. And what's he saying? I'm not like the others. I'm not like the others. Consider this, all who came before him were servants of God, but he is more than a servant. He is the son The servants, the prophets, are not equal to him. He is greater than all prophets. He is the prophet, priest, and king. He is God's son. Or consider this. There have been many who have come before him, but he is the only begotten of the Father. There were many prophets. There is only one son. Jesus is unique. He will not be easily dismissed. Listen, he may be rejected, but the consequences will be greater because he is the son of the father. But there's something else here that we need to see. And this this gripped me. The The text says, finally, he sent the son. Finally. Jesus is the last word of the father. God has spoken finally and definitively in him. As Hebrews chapter 1 verses 1 and 2 tells us, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Jesus is the last word from God. If you, please hear me, if you reject him, there is no other word to be spoken to you. If you reject him, there is no other hope for you. There's no one left to be sent. If you reject him, there is nothing further to be said. He is the last word to rebel sinners, and you reject him at your own eternal peril. But what do the tenants do? Verse 7, but those tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. The tenants don't care that the son has come. They decide to kill him. And they do so because they stoop, they're stupid. Some of you think, I'm, 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 not, I'm not saying that glibly. They stupidly think that if the son is dead, they get to keep the land. There's nothing in this parable so far that would make anyone think that the father has died. There's nothing. If they assume, they assume stupidly that the father is dead. That the father won't avenge his son. Know this, a quick brief application. Sin makes you stupid. 
You think you'll rebel against God and he'll do nothing? How foolish. How foolish. You think you'll reject the son and have no consequences? It's nonsense. These tenants are murderous. They're wicked men who hate the father and the son, and so they decide to murder the son. Jesus is revealing the desires of the religious leaders here. They want to kill him, and he knows it, and he's pointing it out to them. He knows their intentions. They want to kill him so they can keep their authority, so they can keep ruling over the vineyard, so that they can remain in control. They don't want to submit to Jesus, even if he is the son of God. They don't care. They want him dead. Behold the heart of sinful man. Behold it here. What do I mean? The unregenerate sinner would kill God if he could. Know that. Enough of this humanistic nonsense that we get told every day through our televisions that people are basically good. Nonsense. If sinful man could kill God, man would kill God. The unregenerate sinner is hostile to God in perpetual rebellion against him, hating him and wishing that he were not God. This is the heart of all men apart from divine grace. God sent his son, the second person of the Trinity, came to earth and visited his own people and his own received him not. Here's a summary of this. This shows you the wickedness of men. I read this in a commentary. This is very very short sentence. God sent his son and wicked men killed him. God sent his son and we killed him. This is the heart of man, apart from divine grace. And know this, each one of us who are born again, sitting in your pews, apart from God's grace, you are no better. Though some of us know this better than others because God let us dwell in sin for a time. You are no better. Apart from grace, this is in all of us. But Jesus then goes on and reveals that the religious leaders would be successful in their plot to kill him. Verse 8. And they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. He says here, they will succeed. Hear me, the parable has now become prophetic. The parable has become prophetic now. The rulers would have Jesus rejected and killed, and he would be thrown out of the vineyard. He would be thrown out of Israel. Even his crucifixion was outside of the city gates, outside of the camp. He would be thrown out of Israel, counted as an outcast, unworthy of burial. Jesus knew that they would succeed. I think we know this. Jesus' impending death was no secret to him. He's been prophesying this explicitly three times throughout Mark's gospel. All throughout his ministry, Jesus is prophesying this. This is the fourth time that he has mentioned his coming death at the hands of the religious rulers. And the kicker to it all, and the thing that amazes me when I read these things, is he never ran from it. He never ran from it. Never once. Our Lord Jesus embraced that he would die shamefully at the hands of wicked men. Behold, the love of Christ. See it here. See it here. He knew. And he went anyway. He knew that in three days time a cross awaited him. And he did not run. So determined was our Lord to save us from our sins that he marched willingly to his cross. Christian, Jesus loves you. <laughs> he loves you. He did this for you, willingly. He went to the cross to suffer the wrath of God that you deserve, and he did so because he earnestly desired to save his sheep. No one took his life from him. He laid it down of his own accord. He knew what was going to happen, and he did it anyway because of you, or rather, for you. He did it because he loves you. As we're going to sing here in a little while, Hallelujah, what a Savior. He loves you. So Jesus has told us that the tenants killed the vineyard owner's son, that the religious leaders were going to kill him, and now our Lord in verse 9 asks a deadly serious question. 
what will the owner of the vineyard do? I imagine that this question hung in the air. Everyone knows what the answer is going to be because everyone knows what they would do. Everyone recognizes what an injustice it is that the tenants would kill the son of the owner. Everyone knows the answer, and it is a terrifying answer. What will God do to those who reject and murder his son? What do you think God will do to those who refuse his son? What will the owner of the vineyard do? He will come and destroy the tenants and give the vineyard to others. Jesus announces here the destruction that is going to fall upon the religious leaders. They will be struck down by the very wrath of God. All who reject the Son will suffer the wrath of the Father. And this has a special reference uh, briefly to, to, to what would happen to Jerusalem and its religious elite in just 40 years' time. As we're going to see Jesus prophesy in, in Mark chapter 13, the temple and city of Jerusalem are going to be utterly destroyed and ransacked by the Roman army. I believe during the siege of Jerusalem, by the time that the Romans are done with them, I've read, according to Josephus, I believe it was, 1.1 million Jews will be dead. The religious establishment will be destroyed. Not one stone will be left on top of another in the temple. It will be burned down and ransacked. It will be done. The, the tenants rejected the son and the father is going to destroy them. The temple sacrifices will be put to an end. The priesthood will be forced to an end. Hear me. In the destruction of the temple, even the genealogies would be burned up. Why is that important? You have to know who a Levite is to know who's going to be the priests. And the Romans will burn them up. The, the Jews won't be able to reestablish to Old Testament worship if they wanted to. God is so much going to put an end to this, an end to the chief priests and the rulers and the scribes and the Pharisees. All of it. It's gone. It's going to be done. Why? Because they rejected and killed the Son of God. But even more, this has a reference to the eternal wrath of God on those who reject Jesus. God will utterly and eternally ruin those who despise Christ. He will destroy them eternally in a lake of fire under the wrath and condemnation of God. An inescapable, continuous judgment of fire and suffering awaits those who reject Jesus Christ Hear me, God will not be mocked. He did not send his son for no reason. If you reject his son, you will be destroyed. This is serious business. And this is not only the fate of the religious leaders in Jesus' day. This is the fate of all who would dare reject the son of God. Eternal destruction. But notice that the vineyard will not be utterly destroyed. There will be new tenants. But he says he'll, he'll give the vineyard to others. God will always have a people. It just won't be these hypocritical religious leaders of Israel. God will always have an Israel. He will always have a people who worship him and adore him. It just won't be the nation of Israel like the Old Testament. As Jesus said in Matthew 21, verse 43, the parallel account, Jesus looks at them and says, Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people or a nation producing its fruits. What does this mean? God's going to open up his vineyard. And he's going to give it to a people, a new nation that bears fruit for him. The Apostle Paul tells us very clearly in Acts 28, 28, he says, Therefore, he's speaking to the Jews, Therefore, let it be known to you that this salvation of God has been sent to the Gentiles. They will listen. The vineyard will be given to new tenants. The Jewish leaders would reject Jesus and they would be judged, but God is not done. God is going to open the vineyard to others. He's going to bring the Gentiles in and they will bear fruit for him. This is us. By the way, they will bear fruit for him. It will be a true believing Israel of God, just as God had spoken of in the Old Testament. The rejection of Jesus will result in salvation for the world. And then Jesus turns in verses 10 and 11 
to actually, I think he gives his own interpretation of the parable here. Or at least a summary statement of it all. Verses 10 and 11. Have you not read this scripture? Which, by the way, is always a funny thing whenever he's dealing with the religious elite who have this memorized. Haven't you read? Don't you know what God said? Have you not read this scripture? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. This is a messianic psalm, Psalm 118. That's verses 22 and 23. Everyone knew that this this was a messianic psalm. This was not disputed amongst the Jews. And in this text, the Messiah is called the stone. And he is the stone that the builders rejected. Oddly enough, in Jewish tradition, religious leaders like the scribes and the chief priests sometimes were called the builders of Israel. It's an interesting thing there. The stone that the builders rejected, Jesus would be rejected. Just like the son in the parable. Jesus will die. He will be cast out of the vineyard. He will suffer ultimate rejection by the rulers. But that's not the end of the matter. Not not even close. That's not the end of the matter. Why? Because the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. The one who was not deemed worthy of anything but death. The rejected one will become the cornerstone. What is that? It's the most important stone in the building from which you build everything else. Brothers and sisters, this can only mean that death will not be the end of Jesus. He's speaking here of his glorious resurrection. The rejected and murdered Messiah will rise again. And when he rises, there will be a new building, a new temple of which he is the cornerstone, a new temple for God. And Christ will be the foundation stone of that building, the church, the church. That is the true temple. Jesus' death will result in something glorious for the world, salvation. And it's salvation for both Jew and Gentile alike. Christ's rejection and death will mean blessing for the nations, blessing for the world. Please hear me. Let me me summarize all this, and I hope this makes you as excited as it did me. Jesus, by quoting this psalm, is declaring that the plans of the religious leaders to kill him are futile. They're futile. Oh, you will succeed in killing me, says Jesus. The stone will be rejected, but you will not have the last word. In fact, killing him, in, in killing him, their rejection of the cornerstone is actually part of God's plan. Where do I see that? The text. This was the Lord's doing. This was the Lord's doing. God has predestined this whole thing to take place. Acts 4, the early church recognized this. God in Israel, they're praying and they say, your son was in Israel and gathered against him were all the rulers and the Gentiles. Why? To do whatever your hand had planned and predestined to take place. This was the Lord's doing. God has ordained the rejection of his son for the salvation of the world. God had ordained the rejection of his son for the building of his church, the glory of his name, and the praise of his son. The cornerstone will be victorious. Rejecting him is futile. Everything is going according to God's plan, says Jesus. And what appears to be defeat for Christ will result in his ultimate victory over sin, Satan, and death. Truly. As the psalmist says, this is marvelous in our eyes. This is marvelous in the eyes of all who love the Savior. After Jesus says this, verse 12 goes on to tell us that the leaders got the message loud and clear. And they were seeking to arrest him, but feared the people. For they perceived that he told the parable against them. So they left him and went away. Once again, they will not hear the words of the Lord Jesus. Like the tenants in the parable, they wanted to arrest him. They said in their hearts, come, let us kill him. And in doing so, they sealed their fate. The cornerstone will be victorious, but they don't believe it. As I said in the introduction, this text is both a warning and a marvel. 
It's a warning to the one who rejects the Son of God. The stone that the builders rejected has indeed become the cornerstone. He is a rock of stumbling for the unbeliever. Those who trip over him will be broken into pieces. And those on whom he falls in judgment will be crushed. You reject Jesus at your own eternal peril. Beware, be warned, and be wise. Turn to Christ and be saved if you have not. He is your only hope. He is the last word of God to you. Trust that he lived, died, and was raised to save you from your sins. Believe that he is the son of God. Believe that he is the cornerstone and be saved. Look to Christ and be saved. And know that Jesus is either the the judgment stone for those who reject him or he is the chief cornerstone of salvation for those who come to him in faith. Be warned. Second, this text is a marvel. This is marvelous in our eyes, isn't it? This should make you happy. This text should make you rejoice. We who trust in Christ have great reason to rejoice. Why? We've been brought into the vineyard of God. I'd say very few of us, if really any, are Jews. We shouldn't be here. We shouldn't know the God of Israel. And yet, God has brought us in. Every one of us. We, as Hosea said, we who were not his people have become his people. Why? Through the rejection of the Son. We've been brought into God's vineyard. We've been brought to God by Christ. All of our sins have been washed away in Christ's blood, and we are now the temple of God. This is a marvelous thing. This is a marvel. By nature, we are no better than the religious rulers of Jesus' day, but by sovereign grace, we have been made into the people of God. And how? Through the death and resurrection of the rejected stone. Christ has become our cornerstone. And this is marvelous in our eyes. Christian, rejoice. This is beautiful to us. And I pray that God would have mercy on each person in this room and grant that everyone here would embrace the cornerstone by faith. Amen. Let's pray. Our great God, we thank you for your word that instructs us that reveals Christ, your Son, to us, that warns us and also gives us great reason to rejoice. As I said just a moment ago, God, I pray that you would grant to each one of us that we would look to Christ, the cornerstone, and rejoice in him. If there are any here, who don't trust Christ, let them come to him. And for those of us who already know Christ by faith, let us embrace him once again as the true cornerstone of our salvation. We thank you for what you've done for us in him, the rejected one who is precious to us. We pray it in his name. Amen.